electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Yes, indeed it does, Don. Thank you very much. And I am Brian Sullivan in once again for Kelly Evans. And here's what is coming up on The Exchange. Stocks are higher today and closing out a strong week. That comes despite even more hawkish Fed squawking. But can the Fed get inflation under control without crushing the housing market? Plus, California in crisis. The state is facing near energy shortages and is now flip-flopping on nuclear. We're going to dig into where the Golden State went wrong with Michael Schellenberger. And then we're going to get three buys and a bail focused on each kind of economic recovery that we might see. L-shaped, V-shaped, or U-shaped. I feel like I'm doing the Ohio State song. Whatever it is, there's an opportunity there, and we are certainly going to get to that. But we begin with today's markets, and guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to toss to myself. Let's go now to the market desk. Here's Brian Sullivan. Thanks, Brian. Let me take it away. The Dow, the S&P, and the NASDAQ are all higher right now. NASDAQ, the best performer on a, on a percentage basis. Did I do that okay, Dom? Was that a good Am I? Because I feel like Dom Chu today. I'm, only a, I'm a 50% Dom. I love you. All right. NASDAQ up 1.9% right there. We are seeing Dow, S&P, and NASDAQ all higher. Big tech really among the standouts. And it's the biggest of the big tech, the Microsofts, the Facebooks, the Apples, the Googles, the Amazons. They are all firmly in the green. That's going to help a lot of people's ETFs, by the way. I just pretty much named half of all American ETFs. Is the travel trade as well. Royal Caribbean and Booking Holdings, some of your biggest gainers there. By the way, Booking Holdings had the biggest insider buy of the week. We did that on WEX this morning. And speaking of big gainers, check out shares of cybersecurity company Zscaler, sharply higher, following a big beat on both the top and the bottom lines. Stock also getting several upgrades today, including Wells Fargo naming it a top pick. I'm here, so we've got to talk about energy. Energy stocks higher along with the price of oil, but oil overall still on track for a pretty rough week. A second straight week of losses. No decision yet, by the way, from EU ministers on the possible price caps or some kind of tax on excess oil profits, but they did meet today try to solve this crisis. All right, overall, stocks, they are looking to snap their three-week losing streak, but Guggenheim's Scott Minard yesterday warning that he sees a big drop, maybe as much as 20% coming for stocks. Your next guest, though, says not so fast. He expects to recoup the 2022 losses by the end of the year, and he is Barry Knapp, Ironside Macroeconomics Managing Partner, Barry, you know, Scott, he's a frequent guest. He's a, he's a personal friend of mine. He's made some big calls. Some have been right, some not as much. What's your knock on the minor call? Well, um, <clears throat> I, I would say the, the biggest issue that I broadly have, and, and I, I didn't listen to the interview with Scott yesterday. I worked at the same firm as he did for some time. But we used to joke at Lehman Brothers that, Bond guys are always negative because the best they can ever get is par. So um, I'll, uh, I'll exempt my old colleague, Rick Reeder, from that. But otherwise, we always used to chuckle about that. Broadly speaking, though, my, my view here is that what happened in the first half of the year was not the market discounting uh, serious deceleration in economic activity. It was not discounting a recession. 
it was in essence the mother of all taper tantrums. And, and this was what we expected to happen in the first half of the year was a, a large correction as monetary policy turned around, uh, fiscal policy turned around to a lesser extent. And, uh, and we were going to have a Fed policy related correction. So when we hit the two twins in late June, that was twin Fed hawkishness, uh, market expectations of policy tightening, and we hit um, peak inflation. Yep. That was really the inflection point. Now, what happened over the last couple of weeks was also something that we expected going into QT, into reaching the maximum caps. If you consider the three channels for QE and QT, which is liquidity, that we felt was fully priced. The actions of the Treasury early in the year drained a lot of liquidity out of the system. The portfolio balance channel, which is the Fed forcing investors into riskier assets, that's what the taper tantrum was all about. So those two pieces were adequately priced. What wasn't adequately yeah. priced was the level of five and 10 year real or uh, non-inflationary interest rates. We've just had a shock in that part of the curve. 10 year real rates at the after the July meeting were at about seven or eight basis points. They're at now at almost 90 basis points. So that real rate shock. And by the way, that's what triggered the corrections in 18. That's why we just had an aftershock to what we call the mother of all taper tantrums. It's likely complete. Now, I wouldn't totally. Is this very, very, let me jump in on it for a second, though. Do you think so? Sure. You, uh, the, the stock market is not going to fall 20 percent from here is I think what you're saying. I, I think that's that's um, highly unlikely that it would do so. Now, there is a scenario where it could happen, which would be the currency declines that we've seen in dollar yen and uh, Chinese yuan get really unruly were the Fed to push too hard. But I think that's a low probability outcome. I, I, so I'm not totally dismissive of Scott's scenario and downside puts are cheap. So if you want to buy some portfolio insurance, that makes sense. If I'm right and we go back to 4,800, you won't mind having spent that premium on those downside puts. But I think Scott's, uh, what sounds to me like his base case would be only a tail risk for me. Okay. What is the risk of a significant policy mistake by the Fed, which, let's be clear, is slamming on the brakes? They've been going 100 miles an hour for a long time. They're not trying to slow down. They're trying to yeah. stop the car now. Well, I think the Fed was trying to do two things over the last or since the July meeting, which they largely accomplished. They were trying to talk the market out of 2023 rate cuts. And, you know, I was suggesting fading those as well because I think it's unlikely and they were trying to talk up those those rates in the five to 10 year part of the curve. And as I described, they did that. So I think the Fed's been largely successful. My concern is that they push too hard and they send those energy dependent currencies, euro, pound, uh, yen and RMB into a free fall. So that's really where the Fed risk resides. And externally and then domestically, it's in the housing market. As you know, we've had this tremendous decline in uh, demand for housing and the supply for housing. So yeah. those are the two areas of risk. Leo Brainerd noted those on Wednesday. And I think that was really what kicked off the market stabilizing was her recognizing, yeah, these are two areas of, of vulnerability. And if we push too hard, yeah. You know, Bad things could happen. Well, I love the fact that you ended on housing because that's where we're going to start our next conversation. Barry Knapp, Ironsides Macro. Barry, it's good skiing where you are there now. It's, I don't know if it's 100 degrees. You're like Gavin Newsom in a fleece. <laughs> it's like 110 degrees. Barry Knapp, thank it's, you very much.
Still golf season here, Brian. Still golf season. we got the slopes behind it. I love it. All right. If there is one thing that the Fed has been consistent on, it's that we will need to see some kind of economic slowdown in order to bring down inflation. You just can't do it if the economy is booming, running on all cylinders. Don't take my word for it. Here's what former Vice Chair Richard Claret has said earlier today. We could have a downturn in the U.S. with just a sharp slowdown in growth and a modest rise in unemployment. Uh, and I think it's too soon to tell what will be required. But I do think it will be more of a rise than we've seen in the projection. Now, there has been some good news on inflation. Gasoline prices are down. In fact, Morgan Stanley said it's possible we could see a negative print on that CPI number on Tuesday. But here's the bad news on inflation. One of the biggest components is housing and rents. And you know they've been going up, up, up. And they matter a lot more to many people than gas. So if the Fed wants to bring down inflation, does that mean the Fed has to bring down housing with it? Steve Leisman and Diana Olerker here. Uh, Steve, I'll start with you because we're, we're, we're jumping off your excellent interview with Richard Clarita this morning. And you guys were talking and I was listening and well, as I was driving in and he kept sort of mentioning housing around yeah. the margins. First off, how critical is housing to the macro CPI print? It's the easy way. It, it's a big chunk of it. And it, by bringing down housing, the Fed can get a lot of mileage out of the decline in inflation. Take a look. at We have a pie chart, I think, available here, and it shows that housing is 30 percent of the CPI. It's wow. uh, look at that. And, and it's more than uh, uh, much more than food, much more than energy, more than food and energy combined is your housing. Medical care is in there. Energy is nine percent. Um, but shelter is 32% of the CPI. So you figure if you bring down housing, you get a lot of bang for your buck in terms of the impact on inflation. Unfortunately, guys, if you go to the next chart, it's going the other way. Take a look at the uh, housing component of inflation versus the core index. You can see the core index, Brian, actually moderated. And then look at that. That, 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 that white line has kind of gone flat to a little bit down. But Look at housing. It's going straight up and it's expected to continue to go up because of stuff that Diana Olick is doing. Yeah. Well, before I go to Diana, one it's more thing, because I'm, I'm not I'm not the economic <laughs> genius that you are. Steve. Oh, yeah, right. Is the housing component, is that only rents or does it somehow take into account price or probably takes in both because yeah, somebody eventually owns the home you're renting? It's more complicated than you care about or have time for, Brian. Live I promise television. you. I promise you. What it is is what's called essentially for the housing components, owner's equivalent rent. They don't want to get the price component into the, uh, the, the, the basket. They only want the cost component in there. So they take an equivalent of renting your house from rents. And what's coming on with rents? Hold on. We have a quote here from uh, Fed Governor Chris Waller, who spoke earlier today. And what he expects, take a look, on housing services, that's the general idea of renting uh, houses and the, the, the cost of it, I expect to see sizable increases in this component of inflation for a while at the as the recent rise in new rentals makes its way into aggregate price measures. Look, look at Diana in the giant screen. She's thinking. She's like, Lich, I saw you. You're, you're like your eyes were and you're like, okay, Waller, where am I? How do you bring down housing, Diana? Well, I'm just trying to look at all these charts. You know, his charts are a little more colorful than mine, but I'm looking at, you know, we are seeing rents start to moderate. And I know we're seeing more single family rentals come onto the market. We're seeing build for rent and there's so much demand in that single family rental market. But I've got new numbers out today, actually, that show that apartment rents are starting to moderate. They're rising at much slower pace than they were even six months ago. And we do start to see home prices start to fall. We saw that from June to July, the first 
monthly drop in home prices, which usually always go up from June to July, in over three years, and the largest single monthly drop in over a decade. So we are seeing some of that heat come out of the housing market, and that's because of what you're seeing my chart right now, which is the average rate on the 30-year fix is now twice what it was at the start of this year. And what that means is that affordability is just plummeting. And that means that it costs, actually, if you're buying a $400,000 home, it costs $700 more a month today than it would have on January 1st on that monthly payment. So you are seeing prices come down. You are seeing supplies start to come up. And that, again, will bring prices back a little more. So Interesting. I, I, my argument is, OK, you're, I know his chart had it going directly up. And I don't really want to understand the owner's equivalent rent, but I do. Um, but I do think that there is some heat coming out of prices for right, both rents Diana, and for buying Here's the question. Here's the question I have because first of all, I don't think about housing until I listen to Diana talk. She's like the 18th Fed person to me, right? Okay. Ooh. So just just so just to be clear, Diana, here's the problem. You have this attempt to bring down housing cyclically by the Federal Reserve, and yet there's this secular imbalance in the supply. We have been underbuilding housing. For 10 years, which says to me or suggests to me there's a limit to how much it can fall, which says to me there's a limit to how much disinflation housing will ever contribute to the CPI. Exactly. You have that supply-demand imbalance, and depending on who you ask, it's anywhere from one to five million homes that mm. we are lacking that we need right now. And that's why you see so much demand going into the rental market, yeah. because people want single-family homes. And so, you know, if you compare apartments to single-family, it's now a completely different ballgame in the rental market, one from the other. So, you know, and, and the problem also is that home builders are pulling back because they're seeing fewer people coming through their showrooms and they're concerned. So uh -huh. they're not building more, which is what we really, really need right now. Um, and supply, so, and there's also been supply uh, uh, issues with getting the building materials as well. Exactly. I just think exactly. at some point, Diana, maybe I'm wrong about this. There's a point at which you say a 6% mortgage is better than another night on my parents' couch. Well, maybe, but then you've got another problem in the inventory Depends part, the which is that... Yeah, no, if you have somebody who has a 3% mortgage rate, let's say I want to move up in the market. I want to sell my entry-level house. You can't do it. Buy up. You're not going to do it. I can't you fathom could, but taking why would a 6 you? Yeah, why would you want a 6% mortgage, mortgage, mortgage rate when you've got 2.75? Just the whole idea of that says, you, you know what? There because I'm going to take there. my we money and I'm going to put an ADU in the backyard. We talked about this yesterday yeah. because people are going to, they're just going to build on. So I guess this is where I want to go with this. this and thanks for, for doing this because I think this is critically important. If we're talking about getting to... 2% inflation. Inflation's coming down overall. But if housing remains high, yeah. how do we ever get to 2%? Um, it's going to be tough. You're going to have to have disinflation in a lot of places. You have to have uh, the technology you have to come forward. Energy's going to have to go down. You may get a negative print next week, but I think what we heard today from Fed officials is don't go too far with that number. Uh, because there's a, there are permanent aspects. In other words, don't get too excited about what that might mean for Fed policy, because there are some permanent aspects, as Esther George just said, to what's going on with inflation. You've got global supply chain disruptions that may not come back, Brian, the way they were before. And, and you tell me what's going to happen uh, in Europe when it comes to energy. Uh, I just think that, that you have to have the supply chain clear. You've got to have a moderation in mortgage rates. Um, and, and ultimately, you have to have a decline in rents. But there is one upside to this, which is that not everybody, if you call up that pie chart, not everybody experienced, there is probably no person for whom all of those percentages are accurate, right? Like your 
mortgages, your mortgage rate is going to be something different. Where's it, wine on there? See, that, that's the purple so I'm trying right to figure there. out where wine right, right. is. Right, that may be a large percentage or beer for some people. Or, yeah. for example, the gym for Diana Olick for something like that, right? That's what <laughs> I'm thinking. That's called my basement, Steve. Basement. Thanks okay. very much. <laughs> Which the price has, gone not, has okay. not changed at all. Two things. Quickly, uh, you win the chart wars. Steve, 100%. I mean, oh. Diana had like a line. Oh. If I didn't, it would no, be I mean, very bad. She brought like a line. Look, it's like the chart lunch. above her shoulder. Look at the red. <laughs> but I will, give you the, I will give you the final word. No, 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 no. I Diana. have to have the final word on one thing. Okay. Well, where, where's, when will we get more data on housing that's going to be really meaningful when will we know when the 6% number is starting to hit if it's not already? Well, what we're watching most closely is prices and inventory because they rely on each other and that's what's the most important thing driving this market right now. So I'm not looking at, you know, Case Shiller going back two months ago, which is a three-month moving average. I'm looking at what we're getting right now from monthly moves, which we don't usually track in prices, but monthly moves in-home prices which show discrepancies in the seasonality of housing. That is, prices usually go up in the summer. They didn't this summer. Prices usually go down in the fall. What will happen this fall? Month Steve Leesman loves his seasonal. You love some, your seasonal adjustments. If I can get Don't some help you love from, the seasonal? If I can get some help from Diana, I can do some damage. I'm bringing down inflation. Just real quickly, Brian, I want to just correct what you said earlier. There is no such thing as a comfortable uh, couch bed. They're uncomfortable for a reason. <laughs> because what was it? Ben Franklin, fish and guests both stink after three days. I wasn't remember that. Say that but yes, I think that was Franklin. Maybe Jean Paul Sartre. Who knows? All right, guys. Great discussion. Thank important you. discussion. Yeah. Thank you. All right. Still on deck. What's wrong with big phone? Verizon shares seven-year lows of T-Mobile's popping. Craig Moffat will join us next with more on the so-called convergence apocalypse, whatever that is. Plus. If you believe we're already in or heading into a recession, how would you position your stock portfolio? We've got a special recovery edition of three buys and a bail on tap. The Exchange, back after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. All right, welcome back. Got the news alert going because I want to bring you the price of crude oil. It is back up today, gaining back what it lost yesterday. It's up 4% right now to 80, 86 and change. Brent overseas is back above 92. Here's why. The weekly rig count numbers came out and they dropped again. The Baker Hughes number of operating oil rigs, minus five. We're hoping for more production. We're hoping for production gains, folks. We've been talking about this for a long time. The CEOs have told you. There's no people, there's no drilling rigs, there's no steel, there's no water, there's not enough, especially in the Permian, 
to grow production. Maybe we'll see a pop next week, but another week down, drilling rigs losing five. Price of oil is up. Are you know what else is up? Shares of T-Mobile. That's up over 25% year to date. And that is vastly outperforming most other communication stocks. Names like AT&T, Verizon, CNBC parent company Comcast, all trading lower this year with Verizon and Comcast down double digits. And the big loser of the bunch, Charter Communications, falling 40% this year. Now, your next guest has been warning of a convergence apocalypse that is wireless entering cable's broadband sandbox and vice versa. So what does the trend mean for communication stocks? Who stands to win? Who has something to lose? Let us ask Craig Moffat, founder and senior analyst at Moffat Nathanson. Craig, it's good to have you on. Let's put T-Mobile. Let's put T-Mobile aside. I kind of feel like that's almost like a meme stock. They got their own thing going on. Everybody else is down. I, I, I feel like we're in an episode. I'm watching Russell Crowe in Gladiator at the end because they both die. Yeah, well, the, that, in fact, is, is exactly what the Convergence Apocalypse thesis is. Now, to be fair, I want to be clear. I, I actually think the Convergence Apocalypse thesis is not exactly right. Um, in some ways, it's a bit of a straw man to say it's clearly where consensus is, which is to say there are no winners here other than consumers, perhaps. Um, it's certainly a deflationary industry um, in the context of a lot of inflation. But I actually think there are some winners here, and there are some companies that are better positioned than others as we get this competition between cable entering the wireless business and wireless operators increasingly offering broadband service. That sounds really bad. I mean, <laughs> it's like if Burger King, McDonald's, Wendy's, and you know, Yum! Brands just all drove each other out of business. At some point, someone's going to have to win or buy the other one, or or crush the other one. Well, let's let's take buying the other one off the table because I think realistically regulators aren't going to let let any of these companies. Okay. Deals combine. are done, and, so we've, and by the way, the, the deals, deals that done. have been done have been terrible, awful. Uh, yeah, that's right. But the deals, the deals that, that we're not going to see any new deals. Um, but but uh, you know, first let's let's zoom out a little bit and and understand for context. The broadband business has been a fantastic business, right? I mean, one of the reasons it was such a good business is that in most of America, the cable operators more or less had the playing field to themselves. What we're talking about for the cable operators is seeing real competition for today. They overlap with fiber in, say, 37, 38 percent of their footprint. Maybe that goes to 50 to 55 percent of their footprint. Um, it's a material step up where they face competition. Where they face competition, by the way, it's still only a duopoly, so it's not the worst thing in the world. But, uh, but they'll, they'll see it a step up in the percentage of the footprint where they see competition. But it's probably not calamitous. What the market is trying to grapple with for the cable stocks is, is this idea that this is a business that was once great that's now um, only very good. And how do you price that? The wireless business is different. For the wireless operators, Verizon and AT&T in particular, again, let's leave aside yeah. T-Mobile, which is very much the winner here. Um, for Verizon and AT&T, the problem is this was never a very good business to begin with. It was a highly competitive business. It always had three players in it. The cable operators being competitors now mean it feels more like a four to five player market. That's a much, much tougher place to make money. And so it's the, the road forward 
just on that basis alone. There are a lot yeah. of other reasons we can talk so, about, but on that basis alone, the road forward is not as good. For obviously, listen, obviously, Craig, I'm biased. I own one stock. That is com- It's the only stock I'm not allowed to own. I own one stock through our employee stock ownership program. That is Comcast. So obviously, I, I just want people to know that I'm a little biased coming in. But who wins ultimately, the cable players or the phone yes, players? Prob- actually, they probably do. I mean, remember, if, who's if they? This- Does Comcast come out a winner? I think Comcast and Charter come out winners here. Um, and as I said, the market is grappling with how do you value these things. Um, the, the, if, if Look, I mean, remember, the cable companies have been through a long evolution. They went from an act one, which was video. It turned out that act two for them, the broadband business, was a much better business than act one. Um, and so after everybody stopped wringing their hands over, over, oh, my God, video cord cutting is going to kill the cable companies, people came to realize the cable companies are actually going to be better off than they ever were before. Now what people are struggling with is act three for the cable companies is wireless. Um, And they have some real advantages in wireless um, and, and it'll be a profitable business, but not as profitable as broadband. So what people are struggling with is, is this next leg of growth going to be as good as the last one? But again, it's still a really good business. We'll, uh, we'll and, leave, and we'll leave it. We're, we're going to leave it there. I like that. We're going to end it on an optimistic note for our parent company, Craig. So we're going to leave it right there. Craig Moffat and Moffat Nathan, thank you very much. All right, we got a market flash for you. Let's go down to the West Coast. Steve Kovac, what do you got? Hey, Brian. Yeah, shares of Roblox are surging about 7% now after the company announced it's going to open the door to let advertisers into its virtual worlds. This has been something people have been uh, waiting for for a while. CEO Dave Bazuki has been teasing it for the better part of most of this year, I'd say. And um, now they're finally giving more details about what that will look like. Now, they've experimented with brands before. Uh, Spotify, Vans, and some other uh, fashion brands have made their own little worlds within Roblox to kind of experiment with this. And now uh, the company is going to allow even more in and uh, sort of pay to play to get in and and show off what you could do in the metaverse if you're a brand. And look, Brian, this is very similar to where Facebook was more than a decade ago. They got a lot of young users, tens of millions. Eventually, they started uh, monetizing those users through advertising. And what I've been hearing from the Roblox side is they don't want to make this like the 3D version of a banner ad. They're really coming up with more interactive and virtual experiences uh, for people to uh, interact with these advertising instead of just a typical banner. There you go. Roblox, by the way, up today and yesterday, too. Yeah, yesterday. I think my son was a part of that. By the way, happy birthday to my boy today. All right, coming up, record-breaking temperatures, threats of blackouts, and terrible fires, all hitting California again. Michael Schellenberger is here to talk about it all and what California really needs to do with energy. You won't want to miss this. The Exchange is back after this. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Happy Friday. We're at market highs. I think I'm blocking it. There we go. Dow's up 363 over 1%, but the NASDAQ... Big tech, the big winner. There you go. It's up more than 2%, ending out what is turning out to be a pretty decent week. Here are some of the movers this hour. You got Guggenheim is downgrading trader favorite Enphase Energy to neutral. 
saying the stock is now fairly valued and any upside of their estimates is unlikely. Enphase is up nearly 50% in just 90 days, but is the worst performer in the S&P 500 today. Sticking with batteries, or by the way, Enphase is a battery company. The lithium company Almomaro is hitting a new all-time high after Citigroup reiterated its buy. Firm is raising its price target to, for, from 294 to 345 and says Albemarle is a top pick. All right, still ahead. If or when we go into recession, the question then becomes, what kind of recovery will we get? We've got three buys and one bail for alphabet soup of different recovery scenarios. And you're looking at the bail that is down more than 50% so far this year. The name and why is not okay, even in a recovery. Stick around. All right, welcome back. Recession, certainly front of mind for many folks from Wall Street to Main Street. But if we're headed for one, or maybe we're already in one, who knows? What about the other R word? That is recovery. And they come in many shapes and sizes. You always hear it, a V-shaped recovery, a K-shaped recovery, whatever that is. But with so many scenarios at play, how should investors position themselves? Joining us now is Gina Sanchez. She is chief market strategist at Lido Advisors, CNBC contributor. She's got three buys for three different types of recoveries and one name to bail on. And apparently also an English teacher, because you're going to tell us what K and L and all these other things mean. All right. <laughs> First up, Abbott Labs, on pace for its best week since June, up about 5%. You say this is your L-shaped recovery play. That's right. Brought to you by the letter L. Uh, So a lot of people are talking about um, an L-shaped recovery where we basically don't really recover after the Fed is done hiking um, and begins its its easing cycle later in 2023. Um, That really is uh, an ugly scenario, one where you're going to want cash, where you're going to want, you know, really defensive names. Obviously, Abbott Labs is right in that healthcare space. It's super defensive and they have been doing incredibly well. With a 1.7% dividend yield that's been growing, that's also attractive. Okay. Other recovery stock, Microsoft. Why? Yeah. Microsoft is is what we call our U-shaped recovery kind of story, which is that, you know, the, the, the economy slows down without the Fed having to put the screws to it, um, but they don't really, they wait a while until they start to, to cut. Microsoft is one of those stories that just has a secular trend behind it. That cloud computing trend, it's not going away, regardless of, of what happens um, to the economy. Larger or smaller, it's still going to be a big part of it. And at 24 and a half times, it's actually quite attractive in terms of valuation. So we think that's what you sort of use to play the uh, the rest of the the recovery. Okay, I don't think Tesla has a Model K, not yet anyway. But you say if there's a <laughs> K-shaped recovery, also please explain what that is. Okay, Tesla is the name. So a K-shaped recovery is a recovery where part of the market is a winner and part of the market is a loser. Right. So we're going to talk about kind of what wins in a K-shaped recovery here. We're actually leaning into the um, the big fiscal announcement, um, you know, the Inflation Reduction Act. We think that Tesla is going to be a huge um, beneficiary of that right now. It's it's not cheap. Well, it's not cheap by by market standards, but it's cheap by Tesla standards, 54 times forward earnings um, and all of the supply chain disruption that they experienced. They're really starting to catch up there. Um, so we think that the the road toward, you know, the road leads to EV right now and tesla is the poster child for ev okay now we it's three buys and a bail you know the bail i guess is what to get out of 
Bitcoin. Well, the bail is the other side of the K. Yeah, the bail is the other side of the K, right? So, you know, we're highlighting Bitcoin, but here we're just talking about the fact that because we think that the Fed balance sheet, it's contracting and we think it's probably not going to expand for a really long time, that just hits anything that's super speculative. Bitcoin has been a huge beneficiary of excess money supply growth um, that's grown beyond inflation. Well, inflation is back and money supply growth probably is not back for a while. We think Bitcoin is going to be dead money for a while. Oof. Gina Sanchez, appreciate it. Thank you very much. <laughs> All right, now let's get to Tyler Matheson for a CNBC News update. Brian, thank you very much. King Charles using his first speech as monarch to stress how he will continue the traditions of the crown while also honoring Queen Elizabeth and her devotion to the nation. Queen Elizabeth was a life well lived, a promise with destiny kept, and she is mourned most deeply in her passing. That promise of lifelong service I renew to you all today. He also promised to serve Great Britain and uphold its values for the rest of his life. As the Queen herself did with such unswerving devotion, I too now solemnly pledge myself throughout the remaining time God grants me to uphold the constitutional principles at the heart of our nation. The news tonight, team coverage of the first full day of King Charles III's reign and uh, what the coming days hold as Britain transitions to its new monarch. Major League Baseball set to vote on rules later today. Among the changes, a 15-second pitch clock when the bases are empty, climbing to 20 seconds when runners are on bigger bases. Uh, and bigger bases, if approved, the changes will take place in the 2023 season. Brian, I can't tell you how think good I think a pitch clock is for baseball. Got to speed it up. 100% correct. Tyler Matheson, thank you very much. All right, coming up, Sam Bankman-Fried, founder of digital asset exchange FTX, is at it again. But this time, he is not bailing out fellow crypto firms. He's taking a big stake in Anthony Scaramucci's Skybridge Capital and the other companies he's looking to invest in. That's next. Let's call this the odd couple crypto edition. Anthony Scaramucci and Sam Bankman-Fried. The FTX CEO taking a 30% stake in Scaramucci's Skybridge Capital. And Kate Rooney joining us now with the details and a look at Bankman-Fried's growing empire, which apparently does not involve shoes. <laughs> That's right, Brian. Good to see you. Uh, the big crypto industry news of the day. Sam Bankman-Fried's latest bet in the space, the venture arm of FTX, buying a 30% stake in Anthony Scaramucci's Skybridge Capital, $40 million of that roughly $50 million stake will go directly to Skybridge's balance sheet to buy more crypto, which Scaramucci told CNBC earlier today is already underway. It comes after Skybridge had gated some redemptions earlier this year as crypto prices crashed. So less than 8% of that firm's assets are in its crypto fund. This investment will likely also shore up some investor confidence in that fund. It also adds to Bankman-Fried's growing crypto empire. He's provided multiple bailouts this year to BlockFi and Voyager, also an equity holder in Voyager, founded Alameda Research, and he's got a personal stake in Robinhood as well. FTX Ventures also has its own web of startup bets 
On top of that, Bankman Freed telling Squawk Box this morning that it was really about merging digital assets and traditional Wall Street, which is really key here. Bankman Freed has been moving further into that world of traditional finance. FTX US launched stock trading and has shown some more interest in merging these two worlds. Finally, Brian, the deal builds on this conference relationship we've seen between these two. Skybridge owns Salt. For those who don't know, that's a large conference that focuses on alternative investments. Salt and FTX have teamed up on conferences in the Bahamas. They had a big one earlier this year. We'll see if that continues. Back to you. Not a bad place to travel. Kate Rooney, thank you very much. By the way, speaking of Anthony Scaramucci, and, and by the way, speaking of Kate Rooney, they will both join us tonight at 6 p.m. Eastern on Crypto Night in America with more on today's big deal. You won't want to miss that. I won't want to miss it. I can't miss it because I'm hosting it. So for Pete's sake, tune in. All right. Still ahead. How did California, once a shining star of energy in America, end up with energy shortages and dangerous potential blackouts? Michael Schellenberger is up next with that. All right, welcome back to The Exchange. What is wrong with California? The state just came dangerously close to shutting off power in places where people were suffering through temperatures over 100 degrees. In other words, potentially cutting off air conditioning at a time when most people needed it most to stay safe. Now, politicians mostly blaming the record heat, and that certainly played a role in energy demand. But with climate change, we should expect it to be hotter for longer, and we need to prep for it. But California seems to be going the other way, and only just finally did a major U-turn on nuclear power. Joining us now is Michael Schellenberger, president of Environmental Progress and author of what I think is a must-read book, Apocalypse Never. Uh, it's a real eye-opener if you're interested in climate change and energy. I don't know how you don't read it, Michael. It's great to have you on the program. Thank you. I grew up in the shadow of San Onofre in Encinitas, California. We used to go there and actually surf. That is no longer a nuclear power plant. The, the state just agreed to keep its only nuclear power plant open for a little bit longer, which is good news. But here's my question to you. How in the hell did we get to a point where people actually considered shutting off the only reliable thing that was 10% of the state's daily energy supply. It's mind-blowing. Well, yeah. Well, first, thanks thanks for having me on. I mean, you know, like you, I grew up um, as a teenager when Chernobyl happened, grew up very afraid of nuclear. I was a big advocate for renewables. You know, it's become a bit of a religion out here in California. We've certainly been talking about climate change for a long time, so there's no excuse uh, for not being prepared for, for heat waves. But yeah, I mean, um, you know, people got a very apocalyptic worldview around nuclear starting in the 60s. It was uh, the last nuclear plant um, that we ha- we still are operating, Diablo Canyon, was actually supported by the Sierra Club. The turn against it was really because people didn't want to have enough energy to support a growing population. And that continues to be the reason that we in California don't allow desalination plants that we desperately need. It's the reason why they don't create enough water shortage, water storage facilities and why we have water shortages. So there's just a kind of, you know, um, for lack of a better word, I guess just an anti-human, anti-civilization, uh, very romantic worldview. So we've been shutting down natural gas power plants yeah. as well. And now they're burning diesel and kerosene to keep the lights on. It's a it's a really serious situation, actually. I want to get you back on to talk about desalination because Arizona, Nevada, and Utah would love that, but environmental boards won't allow it. That's a different segment. California also has to buy power from other states in order to meet sometimes peak load, does it not? And the risk there, 
And I don't think people realize how close this came. If Arizona or Nevada decides they don't want to sell California any more power because they need it all for themselves, the lights, the heat, and the air conditioning are going off. In the richest state in the world, in America and the world. Well, yeah, not that, but we pay the most for electricity than any other state except for Hawaii. We've had the most expensive gasoline prices, and we also pay the highest taxes. So certainly it's not for lack of money. In some ways, it's because we've been spending so much trying to move to renewables, and we're just experiencing the limits of trying to rely on what are fundamentally you know, unreliable, weather-dependent energy sources. But you're exactly right. I mean, in 2020, when we came very close to having blackouts, the problem was is that we share weather with the states around us. So when it's hot here, it tends to be hot in neighboring states, and they also need their get their gas-powered uh, power plants online. And you know now we're because we underinvested in maintaining our forests. We have these catastrophic forest fires every year. Well, the smoke from the fires is now reducing the output from the solar farms and from solar. So, you know, it's just a it's a badly managed state. And I think it's a case of where ideology actually has created incompetence. Well, it's it's also listen from a media perspective. And I try to get it as right as I can, Michael. And I'm sure I've screwed stuff up in the past. I've been doing this 25 years. If you actually dig into the numbers, and I've got a buddy of mine who lives in Calistoga, his house almost burned out. He got very, very lucky. He looked into it. He's a former investment banker, smart guy. To your point, they always we always blame the fires on energy. The reality to your and sometimes it is, you know, power line goes down. But if the power line is 75 years old and nobody has yeah. bothered to cut the underbrush from the trees. For 30 years because of some reason, either lack of money, lack of effort, or they just don't want to do it. It's a tinderbox. You're literally creating, man is creating these conditions. That's right. I mean, there's no need for electricity shortages. There's no need for water shortages. And there's no need for catastrophic high-intensity fires. You just have to maintain the forests. You just have to have a combination of prescribed burns and mechanical thinning of forests you know, in some ways, we used to just produce a lot more paper and pulp. And thanks to our iPhones, we don't you know, need to use newspapers as much anymore. So we don't have as much of that. But we have to maintain those forests. And it's expensive. It requires a lot of people's efforts. And when we've had this incredible heavy focus on climate change to the exclusion of doing things like maintaining our forests, which the governor actually cut the budget for, you know, you end up with these catastrophic fires. So it's just a it's just a straight up management issue. These issues, it's not this is not like going to Mars or something. Yeah. This is just maintaining your civilization. Yeah. And it shouldn't be that that hard or complicated, but you gotta have adult conversations that probably make some people uncomfortable once in a while. Michael Schellenberger with Environmental Progress. Michael, pleasure to have you on. Good chat and we'll talk desalination next time. State of my birth. I still love it. Got a lot of problems, still love it. All right, coming up. It has been a huge year for stock buybacks, but the value, the dollar value of share repurchases of one sector could be nearly cut in half by year end. We're going to find out who and why next. All right, welcome back to The Exchange. According to Verity Data, more than 1,300 American companies have reported stock buybacks the second quarter nearing the record achieved back in 2020. But the volume of buybacks fell 15% from the previous quarter, 
bringing the total value of buybacks to just shy of $270 billion. That is still the third highest on record. Financials were particularly responsible for the drag, with the dollar value of repurchases falling 44% as big banks stopped repurchases to shore up capital requirements. Where was the biggest increase? The Russell 2000. It's hitting a new record of nearly $20 billion in buybacks. You go, small caps. Joining us now is the man behind the numbers, Ben Silverman. He is Director of Research at Verity Data. Ben, appreciate it here. How do we read the buyback data? Buybacks have been a huge part of the stock market run the last couple of years. Well, thanks for having me on, Brian. You know, as we've discussed in the past, you know, buybacks are a lever, you know, for the market and, you know, and certainly can be. You know, my read on the data, you know, is this is the dollar value is not as important to me right now as the breadth of the buybacks. And so when we have the more than 1,300 companies buying back stock, which, again, is the second best quarter ever after uh, the pandemic quarter of Q120, that tells me that a lot of companies were being opportunistic during the second quarter. And that's what we want to see. That's what we talk to our clients about. You know, our clients are looking for investment ideas from stock buybacks. You know, they're looking for opportunistic buybacks. And that's what we saw a lot of in the quarter. Yeah. And and we got this tax implication now, the 1% thing. I mean, are you you hearing, are you thinking that we're going to see a a big slowdown because of it? Or is it really just kind of annoyance, but it's not going to stop it? I think it's an annoyance. I think that's a good way to put it. You know, the simplest way to look at this is if you're managing a company and you think the stock at $100 is intrinsically undervalued, you're not going to sniff and worry about paying $101 a share for it. So 1% tax isn't going to deter management teams that really think the stock's undervalued. And again, that's what you want to see. You want to see management teams deploying capital into buybacks when they think the stock is undervalued. I want to ask you very quickly about insider buying. We did it on my show, Worldwide Exchange, this morning, 5 a.m. Eastern time, by the way. Ben, you're my guy on this. Booking holding was the number one buy. Tell us a little more about Give us a little more color on the booking insider buy. So uh, Chairman uh, Robert Malad, who used to also be the CFO of the company, he's now bought $3.7 million in shares uh, since the beginning of August. His last buy on September 1st was $1.8 Eight million, so he doubled up here, doubled down here. What's interesting here is this is a company that does not see a lot of insider buying. In fact, his buys are the first of the company in 18 years. So that's the kind of deviation in behavior by a longtime insider that investors should be looking for. That's what they want to see. They want to put see somebody putting their money where their mouth is, you know, putting significant uh, cash into the stock and doing so, you know, especially at these companies that don't typically see insider buying. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting point, which is how frequent is the buying? This guy's stepping up out of kind of nowhere, booking holding BKNG. By the way, that stock's up 3.5%, probably on some of your data, and we appreciate it. Ben, thank you very much. By the way, we do that almost every Friday. During earnings season, there's blackout periods on Worldwide Exchange, 5 a.m. Eastern. That does it for The Exchange. Power Lunch starts right now. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> 